Hey, Mackenzie. What up, Lamar? So for the last month or so, we've been doing a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino. We've been doing a lot of masculine <sighs> testosterone stuff, man. Yeah. yeah. My thought is now that we're switching gears and we're going to be covering Clueless this week, is this the one time where it's appropriate for me to say this one's for all the nope, ladies? Nope, nope, I'm going to stop you right there. Hard no. Uh. All righty, y'all. Welcome back to We Drink and We Watch Things. I'm Mackenzie. I'm Lamar. And we are both sick as fuck. (laughs) Yeah, you guys know that we've been experimenting with different episode formats. We've done some with like where we popcorn around different subjects. We've done Mm -hmm. others where we work our way through a plot beginning to end. This week, we just both decided to be sick as fuck and sound terrible. Yeah, so we're going to see how this one comes out. Maybe it'll be like the sexy raspy sick, you know? I don't know. We're we're here, so you're welcome. Exactly. I I mean, are we heroes? Yes. Yes. But do we deserve to be praised? Yes, just like start just giving us positive feedback, please. Positive feedback immediately. We are not well enough to take the negative criticism this week. So (laughs) all that to say, obviously, we are apart again today, which was not the plan. So I am sad pants. What this also means is that we coordinated our beverages separate again. And I purposely didn't tell you mine because I have a surprise. But I'm going to start with yours. What are you drinking? So... I decided I really wanted to do some. So I feel I felt like a cosmopolitan or a pink cocktail sounded right. Mm-hmm. But now that I have COVID, I've had to you know shift things. And I decided, you know what? I really love how Paul Rudd chugs the orange juice directly from the bottle in the movie. So that is exactly what I'm doing. I have an entire <laughs> jug of orange juice. And that's what I'm going to be drinking today. That is the clip for the Instagram, by the way, that just <laughs> holding up the big old jug of orange juice. I want you guys to see it. It was, yeah. uh, there, it was great. There might be some vodka in there sooner rather than later. Because if COVID's going to get me, it's like I'm going to die doing what I love, drinking and talking yeah. about motion pictures. So Yeah. I mean, so it's going to burn through it all too, right? I mean, I think isn't I'll that the whole with... concept of a hot toddy anyway? <laughs> like, let's just burn it out. So I'm into it. What about right, you? What well, are you drinking? I am drinking... Out of a red solo cup because I high see. school parties. You know what okay. I mean? Like I just the homage to the high school party mystery cocktail, but I have deemed mine the toothache. And because uh, <laughs> it's so not, damn sweet. Because it's so damn sweet. I can't tell you a lot about it because it has a lot of crap in it, but I can tell you that it's pink. And I felt like that was the vibe today. So cheers to that. Cheers. <sighs> Yeah, now you have to go add vodka to yours because I can't be drinking alone. You know what I mean? (sighs) All right. Well, I think the the great thing about this movie is that everyone except my fucking boyfriend has seen this. I'm just kidding. He has now been forced to watch it. But everyone else has seen this movie pretty much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's very hard to spoil this movie. But again, we'll give you the classic spoiler warning in case this is your first time here. Watch it first because we're going to give you all the deets about it. We're going to do a little less of a plot summary this week, I think, right, Lamar? We're just going to chat about it because I think yeah, you we all know found what that when, like, We found that when we do plot summaries front to back, we end up recording for about 90 minutes and having to cut that down to 75 to make it a little more palatable for y'all. 
Y'all, y'all so, don't know how hard that is. <laughs> so we're just going to focus on like key takeaways today. Some let's key let's take- popcorn around, have some interesting discussions, mm-hmm, but we're not mm-hmm. going to feel the need to talk about every plot point in detail. For sure. I did, of course, as is my method, live tweet this back to myself. So I have a few of those gems to share throughout. Mm-hmm. I also have some, some general nerdy gems to share throughout. And I'll kick us off at the top in case you didn't know. This is a classic retelling of Emma by Jane Austen. If you've seen any version of Emma, uh, you'll, you'll recognize this plot anyway. So if you've read Emma or seen a version of Emma, same story, just modernized for basically the 90s teenager, man. And it's a classic. I love it. If you haven't watched a version of it, you should. I'm better yet because, again, I'm a nerd. Read the book. Read the book. Yeah. And I've always, I feel like when I was looking for fun facts, that was the first thing that came up on every list of, oh, it's based on this Jane Austen novel. And I remember that EZA was also based on a, a, a young female novel. And there were a couple others. And it's I've never read it. I didn't read any of those books in high school. So mm. I felt a little bit left out. If they make a young female empowerment film based on the Goosebumps books, I think that <laughs> would land better with me. You'd be good record. to go. You'd be good to go. Yes. Yeah. Hey, listen, I loved Goosebumps as well. Like, yes, I am a nerd and I read the the Emmas of the world, but I also read every motherfucking Goosebumps. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I think the thing that's probably most embarrassing is I just admitted I was still reading them in high school. So that Ooh, might reflect yeah, a little a poorly on me. I was definitely but... in fourth grade. So <laughs> You love what you love. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're talking to high schoolers here. So, I mean, it's fine. We can, we can uh, have some high school themes. One of them is, you know, this is a high school Noxima ad and she calls it out right at the top, which I think is hilarious because I don't know if you remember, this is like a real nostalgic throwback for me in general Mm -hmm. for 90s stuff. I think, I think there's a lot of that throughout, but it definitely looks like a Noxima commercial. Like it's very, it's a very self-aware film and we should say, Directed by Amy Eckerling, brilliant mm-hmm. film, uh, done in 1995. So it's real on brand for when it comes out. Yeah, she also did Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She didn't do a lot after. I mean, she did a few other films, but for as great as those two are, like knocking those out of the park as far as high school coming of age tales and from different mm-hmm. perspectives, too. It didn't seem like she got a lot other than that. She did direct Look Who's Talking and mm-hmm. Look Who's Talking Too, but she did not do look who's talking now the one with the dogs which personally is my favorite Mm, yeah missed opportunity i mean (laughs) yeah no i don't know why she didn't do a lot more maybe she felt like hey i checked the boxes i wanted to check but you know so that that's good for her i guess but she did a great job like you said i mean she's kind of she covers two very different perspectives there but she definitely is you know telling the story from the female lens and i think a really cool way throughout like you said we did a lot of, you know, testosterone heavy dude stuff. So it was kind of a nice refresher and juxtaposition to mm-hmm. see some some like kind of those girly vibes in the film in the best way. I think it's peak 90s, but it's definitely a female lens throughout. And I always wonder from a guy perspective, I know this isn't your first watch. This was Skylar's first no. watch. So that was an, an interesting process. Like, does it feel alienating in any way for you as a dude to try and watch this movie? Or do you no. do you also really enjoy it? 
No, I really enjoyed it. And I, I have to say, I think I saw it maybe once or twice when I was in middle school, maybe high school. And I hadn't seen it in about 20 plus years. Sitting down mm. and rewatching it, I forgot how damn funny the movie is. So yeah. I don't think it's it's alienating at all for a, a guy to watch this and thoroughly enjoy it. I think there's a lot of humor and it's interesting. What I, One of the cool things about it is that even though it is so 90s, as you said, in a way, it feels timeless because even though mm-hmm. there are, you know, the clunky cell phones and the fashion and the music is all 90s, it does feel like a movie you could throw on for a teenage girl nowadays and they would still think it was great. Oh, for sure. I totally agree. And I think like it's funny how you mentioned the fashion and fashion being relatively cyclical. I think we're seeing right now, at least for me, it feels like a real resurgence of several eras of fashion, but 90s mm-hmm. being one of them. And yeah. so it almost is especially timeless right now, I think, for young women today who are, you know, wearing some of the same kinds of outfits. And I mean, listen, from a costume design perspective, this movie knocks it out of the park, like just the sheer array of outfits and styles and and really like designer stuff, of course, because she's a wealthy girl. We can't get around it. She's got nice shit. Uh, I it did really like that I, I found one little factoid that to me, this still seemed excessive, but I, I thought it was interesting that you would assume that all the clothing worn in the film is sort of very like haughty toddy brand names and like super expensive. But the entire costume budget was something like 200 K, which still to me, I hear that and I'm like, that's ridiculous. But yeah. when you think about the, you know, the plaid skirts and these different mm-hmm. outfits and the dresses being worn, it's actually because the director wanted them to feel like, mall rats like kids that would yeah. go and spend which is what they do like two or three times in the film is go to the mall right. they're not going to these high-end stores to find their yeah. clothing except for Cher who does go to fucking Rodeo Drive let's be honest <laughs> let's not miss that part where she by- walks home with a Christian Dior outfit without a wallet by the way one of my biggest pet peeves in that whole scene is that she can't drive and she's walking around Rodeo Drive and buying stuff with her non-existent wallet probably because it didn't go with the outfit Let's be honest. And you know she doesn't have pockets either. That's what I'm saying. They didn't give us pockets back then. They were <laughs> they were trying to restrict us women and not give us pockets back in the day. But I still want her software. Speaking of the clothes, that is one of the best parts of the <laughs> intro is the computer, which is also, by the way, a touchscreen. And, you know, she's matching Before up her outfits. Time. Every girl, and I'm not even like the most girliest girl, especially when I was a young girl. I was very more, very much more a tomboy. Every girl I have ever met wanted that fucking software. Like, just so handy. Who doesn't? I think it's not just a girl thing. Like, who doesn't want something to just match up your outfits at the beginning of the day? The rewatch last night with Janelle, that was the first thing she said out loud during the movie. I wanted that so bad. Janelle gets it, man, as usual, (laughs) as usual, on brand. Yeah, but again, I think it works for everybody. But yeah, there's a lot of that stuff that really stands out as still being really cool, still being really timeless, something you would still want. But it's your point. I think it overall really does hold up. There were one or two things throughout that I was like, ooh, this, this doesn't really hold yeah. up as much anymore. There luckily, I thought, weren't as many as we have experienced, I think, lately mm-hmm. with 
a lot of the Tarantino stuff. Mm-hmm. There weren't as many that stood out to me, but there were definitely a few. And I'm wondering which one stood out to you because I, yeah. I noticed a couple. <laughs> Wrote down a few and I said, can't make these jokes anymore with a colon and a, a couple <laughs> bullet points underneath. And it was, I think there's a joke at the beginning of a student trying to commit suicide over his grades. You're like, oh, can't really, can't really yep. do that anymore. There, you had a hard R in there. Mm-hmm, a hard uh, R. And I was like, ooh, it hurts, it hurts. <laughs> yeah. You had the line, I don't speak Mexican. And then the, probably the worst one that I heard was, I thought they declared peace in the Middle East. I mean, oh, that one, hearing gosh. that, I tensed up a little bit and was just like, oh, no. You were like, this is not timely. This is not right. good. Uh, no, right. yeah, all of those hurt me. I do think the Mexican one, like, sucks all around, for sure. Mm-hmm. And But I also just thought it was in the middle of, like, all her tantrums. And she's like, everything's my fault. And I kind of just hearken back to her vocabulary. For that one in particular, it really irks me because you know she's kind of an airhead but she's in a good school she's pretty mm-hmm. well educated it's implied that other than debate she has a pretty good average right like she does pretty good yeah. grades so come on you fucking know it's spanish like this is not this is not a funny joke yeah i did not yeah. like that one i still don't like that one shout out to lucy for talking shit back i love it that's the maid for those of you who don't remember we love her uh but yeah the hard r's got to me as well i did not did not like those i also noticed britney murphy oof r.i.p r.i.p britney murphy i also noticed that she says mentally challenged at one point Mm -hmm. which is like marginally better and Mm -hmm. i was like oh cool i wonder if she just didn't want to say that and was cognizant of that but then she says it later and I was like, so maybe super the girls bummed. around her, maybe it was bad influence. I know, maybe that is the progression, you know, because she turns into a little bit of a monster for a hot yeah. minute. Not doesn't last, but for a hot minute. Yeah. Speaking about that, one thing that I thought was interesting was this. Almost, I know that Mean Girls wouldn't come out until like eight or so years, probably more than that after this. But I found it interesting that this is sort of a, an inverse of that, where mm-hmm. Mean Girls is a girl infiltrating the popular kids to try and take them apart. This is the popular kids actually doing a good deed. And trying mm-hmm. to bring in this outsider that they feel sorry for. And then that ends up sort of turning on them. And she, to your point, sort of becomes one of the bad ones. Yeah, I think Mean Girls is such a great example of how this can go wrong. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's really and and I think one that people can relate to, like myself included, not so much in high school. I, I didn't really have these kinds of relationships in high school, there's like something about middle school girls that is an actual atrocity. Uh, They're the worst people in the world, I think. So I more associate that behavior to middle school girls. And I actually learned fun fact from a psychologist that that's a developmental thing, that there's like a reason in their brains why this is happening. Empathy hasn't fully developed yet all kinds of stuff like that. So anyway, there's kind of a reason for it, not to excuse the behavior, of course, but there's a developmental reason. We're not fully developed. We're being assholes. But I I need a bonus episode on that. I know we really do. Sociology and psychology of it. Of a teenager in general and like how our brains develop. So again, not to give them an excuse, but it kind of makes sense for middle school girls to be that way. So I liked that in this film about how in high school they've sort of matured a bit and they're being more welcoming and I really thought that was contradictory to a lot of the the bullying that seems so prevalent today Mm -hmm. and and especially the you know cyber bullying and all of that I just thought this is great this woman young girl sorry sees this other girl who clearly is an outsider clearly doesn't fit in or at least in this environment she fits in somewhere but she doesn't fit in this environment yet and 
they kind of take her under their wing. And I love that because I just think that that was always what I really honestly strived to do and still do. I still try to be that way of like, find the person who's on the wall and make them feel welcome. And I liked that because I just, it felt so different. So I, I think that that's one of the real endearing qualities about Cher as a character. Like she does generally want to be kind and inclusive overall, I think. Yeah. Well, between you being anti-bullying and trying to befriend the folks who are on the wall to your point and us doing a podcast on a day where we're both very sick again we're the real heroes i think we're the real heroes we're learning that today i think we deserve medals we'll make some later guys and we'll we'll share them on the on the instas (laughs) it wouldn't be the first time i've made medals for myself but (laughs) so one other thing to sort of spin off of that that i really enjoy about this is that I think I forgot so much about it and I thought going in this time that it was one thing, but it was something totally different. I remembered this being sort of a lifestyles of the rich and famous and thinking, oh, this might not have aged well because it's going to be these rich Mm -hmm. characters with problems that no one cares about. They don't relate to. They're not like presented as evil rich people. And I think the fact that we get... Which I I don't get the hate and for Amber, Elton, honestly. Those are both slightly evil characters. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that I get it other than she's clearly presented as Cher's nemesis-ish. Because they're still yeah. friends, you know? So anyway. Yes. So it kind of, I think having the internal monologue of Cher sort of guiding gives us that insight to, oh, this is a good person. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at it from a mean girl's lens, you just see Regina George as terrible. But if you get her, maybe what she's thinking, you might have a little more sympathy for her and empathy. So I, I thought that was interesting that there's not really, aside from, I, I would say Elton is kind of, is a, a villain. But aside for from that, sure. there's not really a bad guy in this. Yeah, I don't think that there's a bad guy so much as there's a, there's a selfish or narcissistic kind of person. And mm-hmm. I think obviously Elton is that character, which is a direct homage to the book, by the way. It's Mr. Elton in the book, so pretty okay. close. But yeah, so I think he's just meant to be this just wholly snobbish character. And I love that she says that too. She's like, you're a snob and a half, which is a basic paraphrase of what is said in the book. Again, in, in yeah. Jane Austen language, snob and a half is a direct translation, in case you're yeah. curious. My English that- degree is here to translate for you. That line stood out to me, too, because, again, these are all very well-off people. They're all in the same high school and very rich. Even the burnout characters go to this upscale high school. So the fact that our protagonist would refer to the evil person as like a snob and a half, as opposed to just a regular snob, which, you know, Mm -hmm. who's to say how many people in this high school are that? Well, I think what's funny, too, to me about that is that, like, we acknowledge that they're all pretty well off. They're all, like they're all relative to one another in a privileged environment and community. But Josh, who is, I mean, continuing the translation is Mr. Knightley in the books is supposed to be kind of her uh, brother type of figure, but he's supposed to be the guy who is elevated above all this, not the same level of privilege, more quote unquote woke as we would call it these days, right? (laughs) Your first image of him, or not first image, but one of his early images is him in his Ray-Bans and his goatee scruff and reading Nietzsche and doing all the cliche, like I'm a freshman in college moves, which she calls out and I love that for her. But he kind of positions himself as being above it all, 
right? Like I'm not mm-hmm. into this high school drama and bullshit and the shallow nature of your entire life is beneath me and blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, he is still from this same privileged class. You know, he may not have the same relationships that she has as far as like Mel's not his real dad. He clearly doesn't have like a full father figure, um, that kind of thing. But he generally does still come from privilege and benefits from this privilege. And that is very true. I think that's captured so well from the book as well. Like Mr. Knightley is very much that he is very wealthy. He's very successful and he just wants to be above it all. But he's he's really not. He's really in that same community ultimately. And I thought that they did a really good job of translating that to him. Yeah. I thought the dynamic of Josh and his stepfather was interesting because I thought it was kind of cool that he comes back, he comes home because this is sort of the best family that he's got. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he takes such an interest in the legal case that's working. I feel like half the times you see Josh on screen, he's just going through folders and like helping out. He does say he wants to be a lawyer. So I get that. But But like, why? Sorry. Yeah. Sidebar. (laughs) I just really have questions about that given his whole personality. But yeah, keep going. Maybe he thinks that, no, we could talk about that. Maybe he thinks that he's going to do some good in the world. He does seem concerned with world issues and stuff. But I mean, litigation lawyers, I guess it sort of depends. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I say this as somebody who donates to a legal law firm called Earth Justice, where they literally pay lawyers to fight legal battles on behalf of the environment, which it sounds like is what Josh wants to do. So, okay, I'm I, sorry to not. I need to ask: in these cases, is the plaintiff <laughs> the Earth? <laughs> is the plaintiff the Earth? Do, uh, do they read that out loud in the courtroom? <laughs> in the case act- of the Earth versus Mackenzie Wayne, we find. <laughs> Uh, that is such an excellent question. Uh, a lot of times it is a, a an entity they get on board to file a lawsuit, whether it's a community or a park or a whatever or a municipality against oftentimes the government, actually, many, many governments, usually the government. They're just fighting the government all the time. And yeah, OK, so now you all know I'm a tree hugger moving right <laughs> along. Sounds like that's what Josh wants to do as well. So I guess it it sort of makes sense to me now. Yeah, I, I wanted to call out that this is a lot of people think this is Paul Rudd's first movie. It was the first one that got released. He had actually already yeah. filmed Halloween six, probably mm-hmm. what people would say is the best Halloween movie, the sixth one before this, but it ended up getting released afterwards. So first Not time really we see him on screen. But I think the main takeaway here is that he looks exactly the fucking same. <laughs> It's so weird because I think he's 26-ish in this, mm-hmm. and I can see little creases in his forehead. Not like anything crazy, but it's like he has the emotion lines, lines in the forehead going. Lines, but it's somehow yeah. he's kept them the same, you know, he maybe picked, like a 10 He just committed to worse. the lines early on and just <laughs> kept the same ones. And I, I think we still all are asking for that skincare routine, Paul. Like, give us a call. <laughs> Everybody still wants to know what it is. <laughs> while we're while we're talking about Paul Rudd, is there anybody else in the cast that you want to call out specifically? We haven't even I don't think we've mentioned Alicia by name yet, have we? We have not. Uh, well, I said I said at the beginning, I think a little bit, but yeah, Alicia Silverstone, this is her most famous role. I think that is obviously mm-hmm. not not up for debate, but Alicia Silverstone just really embodies this character. She did a throwback to this character a couple years ago in case you missed it. Super Bowl um, commercial. Yeah, Super Bowl commercial exactly. And then Stacy Dash, who's kind of the worst in my opinion. She's great in this movie. <laughs> as She's a great person, in this yes. role, but like as a person, Stacy Stacey leaves a lot to be desired. 
Brittany Murphy is, mm-hmm. I think, was an incredible actress and woman who, of course, we lost too soon and had a lot of potential and did some yes. really cool stuff in her time. Uh, very sad, but she does a beautiful job here, of course. Yeah, I like the physical comedy that she commits to in this yeah. of the falling down the stairs and oh just. Oh my god! I forgot it that her character hurts to watch. <laughs> I forgot that her character wasn't just a helpless high schooler with no fashion sense. I forgot that she's just a total burnout. You know, she's asking about drugs the first second she gets befriended. Yeah. And then she wants to go be friends with the stoners and they're talking about drugs throughout. So I thought that was kind of funny. I'd forgotten about that. I think what's fun about her is that, or, or I shouldn't say her, but like her intro there that you're talking about is the parallel conversations that continue to happen that whole time. Like mm-hmm. they're having two conversations at the same time and it's yeah. all the way through. I've never had straight friends before. And they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. And they still don't get it. Yeah, which yeah. I thought A was funny, but also B questionable because I was like, listen, a well-off school like this, these mm-hmm. are the kids who have the access to drugs. Right. Like, they can readily afford any available. drug they want. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, you know what she means. But yeah, it was just, a, you know, different phrases, I guess, being used at the time. But they were having two different conversations that whole time. And I just thought that was hysterical. But she's yeah, a I'm great a f- character. Yeah, I really, I wanted to mention really fast that her laugh when they're at the party and Cher says, oh, pretend Travis said something really funny to make Elton jealous. She does a laugh that is pulled straight out of A Christmas Story. When Ralphie's younger brother is laughing with the mashed potatoes in his mouth, she's doing this like hilarious sort of okay, like Okay, but half you can't cackle, bring it up like, and not do it. So now you gotta I, do it. I don't it. know that I would do it justice, especially with being sick like this. But it's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't, he, she doesn't get the snort. But she it's just almost, this like hearty, it's like just shy of yeah. the snort, you know. Yes. Which I almost wish she had done the snort. I feel like that would make it even better. <laughs> like if you're trying to be really attractive to someone and then you snort, like how great would that be? Oh my god! Yeah, I love her her little fake laugh. I love that she's. It was. It kind of uh, really follows, you know, that character of just she's she's not like low class by any means. Like, again, this Mm -hmm. is all relative, but she's just relative to them, not as wealthy, doesn't have the same level of access, doesn't run in these circles. And so she's just, yeah, she's just following their lead, including Elton. I'm like, do you even like Elton? Like, let's Mm -hmm. talk about that for a minute. That is one of the most, obviously, it's a huge part of the story and it's really well done, but it is so high school. So I love that translation from, again, the book to this retelling Mm -hmm. of the story in high school because it is so high school to be like, so-and-so likes you and, oh, so-and-so has your picture in his locker and all that kind of nonsense. But it's so funny to me because she doesn't like him. She likes Travis. No, she likes Travis. You know? Cher pushes her right toward Elton. I know. And it's like, that's the right person for her. And I think that carries over again from like the Austin era type of story of Mm -hmm. this person is inappropriate for you. It is genuinely literally beneath you. And then translating that into a wealthy LA Beverly Hills community and making that make sense in this context really worked. But it was really sad because you're just like, that's not... This guy is so kind to her and is so sweet and Elton mm-hmm. is so ambivalent. And I think they, just to get filmy for a second, really show that in the party 
because mm-hmm. to your point, that whole scene is her trying to impress him. And one of the moments that they try to impress him is her and Cher dance and Cher's pulling her away from Travis, but mm-hmm. her and Cher dancing for a minute. And the lens at that moment is on Cher, not on Ty. Mm-hmm. It is literally showing like she's there holding, literally holding up tie to spin tie around but the lens isn't even looking at tie like this is where elton's eyes are looking and this is where elton's eyes are going he doesn't even see her and Mm -hmm. it's just so sad and it's also like Cher doesn't get it and tie doesn't get it and it's all a misfire and it's it's such it makes for such an interesting story obviously yeah, I think Jeremy Sisto in this role, pretty much, I mean, he nails it. He plays sort of this like apathetic sort of um, humdrum character who's, yeah. I will say that it gave me, again, teacher flashbacks of when the teacher says, oh, does anyone else have any thoughts on this? And Elton raises his hand, Elton, says, my foot my hurts. CD. <laughs> my foot hurts. Can I go to the nurse? That is such a... Uh, the teacher in me was very irritated with that. If it makes you feel any better, speaking of love stories, the whole story about the teachers that happened separately, you know, the matchmaking of the teachers. I mean, obviously, this mm-hmm. is a lot of matchmaking. That's the point of the story. Emma is a matchmaker and a.k.a. Cher is a matchmaker. And she puts together Mr. Hall and Miss Geist. And there's that scene where they finally have sort of gotten them together in their dating mm-hmm. and they're at the car, Mrs. Geist's car kissing. And she's like trying to bust into her car and i literally in my notes have in all caps teachers are underpaid teachers are underpaid <laughs> they can't even get the auto locks she can't even get, she can't even get in her fucking car much less lock or unlock it i was like oh this poor woman and they make her seem like such a mess but they're at a bougie fucking school you know what i mean they're at a high-end beautiful school it's a gorgeous campus all that and poor teacher can't get into her car i was so sad for her but they're cute That's like the one genuine connection that ends up happening. I'm glad that you pointed that out because I couldn't remember. Obviously, the the matchmaking that she does with those two teachers is what spurs her to want to do more good deeds. And that's the entire reason they befriend Ty. But I was like, is that where that story ends? Does it come back into play? I couldn't remember on the rewatch. But now that you say in the novel, Emma, she is a matchmaker. That's kind of the whole story that now I understand that connection. Well, her whole thing is, again, to the novel, she's very wealthy. She doesn't need to marry if she doesn't want. Her father is also not a big proponent of her marrying. You know, this Mm -hmm. is of the era and of the time most fathers want their daughters to marry. But because her mother is no longer with us, he doesn't really want her to marry. He wants her to stay with him and take care of him. And he's very wealthy and successful. And he loves their dynamic. And that kind of shows with Sharon Mel as well, right? And... So he doesn't really care about her prospects. And as a, a by virtue of that, he's turned her into a very independent, I mean, again, dependent on his money, but a relatively independent young woman who doesn't care about that. So where she gets her joy, you know, as a character for, for much of the novel is matchmaking other people because they need it. They need to find a partner, right? Like that's a big motivating factor of that era is these people do need to find a partner. And so I do think it's for love for Ty, a.k.a. Harriet, that Mm -hmm. she's trying to match make her with the quote unquote right person. 
And, okay. and they really position Elton as that as well. Like he's the right person. He's the right fit. He's got the right money. He's got the right connections, you know? Okay. I will say having not read the book and, but hearing you say that, I'm glad that they sort of changed the father daughter dynamic a little bit in this one, because it does feel like he wants her to be happy. He doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's obviously very imposing. He does the classic father trope of like, if anything happens to my daughter, I'll kill you, blah, blah, blah. With every guy that comes into the house. Five and a shovel. Yeah. <laughs> fucking love that line. <laughs> But I remember writing down that, God, I one trope that I never get tired of is the the father who just always has his daughter's back. And not mm-hmm. just in that case, but helping her out. I like the line of, Daddy, have you ever found yourself in a case where you couldn't argue your way out of it? And he says, what is it? I'll help you. We'll argue I'll, our way out we'll, of it. We'll, he's like, the answer is no, basically. So let's fucking figure it out. And I love that. The almost lawyer in me loves that. I was like, yes, let's do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I love that, that too, that he okay. had just has her back in that. He's like, no, we're going to figure it out. I thought it was very sweet when she says, there's a boy that I like, but I'm not the girl he wants to be with. And the father responds with a very sincere, well, how can that be? Like, he just doesn't believe it because, yeah. he, you know, he's got his daughter's back and he thinks she's the best thing in the world, which is very sweet to see. And he points out stuff about her, too, to her that I think maybe she doesn't notice as well of mm-hmm. he's like, you take care of the household and you take care of me. And those are some of the things that, you know, unfortunately are kind of quote unquote women's work. And we don't love that about it, but mm-hmm. it does come from a place of genuine care. And I think that's one of the things that again, makes share endearing that can be overlooked because of her spoiledness, right? Like she is spoiled yeah. and she is a little self-involved and and a little bit not educated about her environment and the world in which she lives because she is so privileged right so there's all these things that can be very frustrating about her but i think when you get down to it and what he sees as her dad is that she is a good person a loving person who cares for him cares for her immediate family and friends and people for whom she wants to show care and take care of them and so i think yeah that's a really beautiful relationship in that way and even though he's like the scary daddy he does that scary dad role and she's like daddy and but she acts like this this baby to him and she's not scared of him and like everyone else is <laughs> And I just love that dynamic of she's like, okay, I can play this guy like a fiddle. Like, what are you, you know, <laughs> he's not that scary, really. Yeah. Backtracking a little bit, I liked something you said specifically about why we sort of like Sharon. You know, we don't have to get into a big social conversation around privilege and whatnot. But I think the fact, again, that they have you in the lives of these very well-off characters who are clearly privileged, but she is taking steps to be a better person. And again, mm-hmm. not trying to make a point that rich people are bad. No, not saying that, but I'm saying she is a product of her environment. So Don't the fact lie, that you're she saying can... eat the rich. Okay. <laughs> no, because I'd record. like to be one of the rich. That's America's <laughs> whole game is like, oh, I could be rich one day, so no taxes for anybody. Okay. Exactly. I said we're not going to get into this. Cher, she's trying to improve herself. She's trying to learn and educate. So I think that's kind of a cool thing to see in this is that I, again, that's why I thought it wasn't going to age well. Cause I, I thought it was going to be sort of a lifestyles and the rich or the famous, but mm-hmm. it's just to say you are not bad because you're rich, but you are a product of your environment. You've grown up with this privilege. So if you don't learn to acknowledge that there are problems in the world and ways you can help, yeah. then I think that is where it comes in, where you run the risk of being so selfish and so almost isolated from your, from the real world. I think like, you don't pay yeah. attention to the the real trials and tribulations of others because your immediate environment isn't that difficult 
in that way, yeah. right? Like, again, yeah. because to your point, being rich doesn't absolve you of real life, right? P- people have struggles regardless of their net worth. And I think that's where she starts to learn, like, all her credit cards and her buying of clothes and everything is not going to make her happy. It's not going to make mm-hmm. her a better person. It's not going to help her friends. So what can she do to work on her soul? And she says that, like, now I'm going to make over my soul. And I think that's the biggest moment of growth for her as a character. And mm-hmm. it's a really beautiful one to see a real maturing of her share the character, but also tapping into who she is again as a person of who is a pretty good person, but maybe has some stuff to learn. Cause like, don't we all, but then she throws herself into it and it leads to some of the funniest moments in the movie <laughs> where she's the captain of the Pismo beach relief committee and she's giving them her skis. And Mel's like, <laughs> do you think they need your skis? And she's like, people lost everything. Don't you think that means athletic equipment too? And I just love her commitment to that of the first thing that they need is skis and caviar. You know, like that's what she, when she's going through her closets and her pantry and her everything, that's what she pulls out. And it's, it's very sweet, but it's also a, a insight into where she's coming from versus everyone else for sure. Yeah, it's at the end of this story, it doesn't have to be that she is a million times smarter or that she's giving away her money or any. It's that she's trying to do better. Not to say that she wasn't already a good person to begin with, but I think everyone should take that lesson from this. Everyone is a product of their environment, of the parents they were born to and of the neighborhoods they grew up in. All we can do is try to be a little bit better than what we inherited. A hundred percent. And I think she does that throughout. And I think she, her one moment, I shouldn't say of weakness or, or selfishness in that way, but just her one moment that she, during that process of trying to self better, where she sort of thinks about herself again, is her attempts at romance, which are hysterical. We have to talk about obviously the character of Christian and, you know, he is, I love again to, to harken back to Mel and his reactions to him. He's like, did you think that the death of Sammy Davis left an opening in the Rat Pack. <laughs> That's it, I said that to Janelle. I was like, so basically the director said, get me James Dean. And they were like, James Dean is dead, ma'am. And they said, well, get me this other kid that looks kind of <laughs> like James Dean. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Played by Justin Walker, who does a great job at emulating that trope, that character archetype, rather. He does a really good job, but he also, he stays so cool in front of mm-hmm. Mel and in front of everybody. And I need I need your take on this because this was my favorite part. Again, I made Skylar watch this today. And I have seen this a million times, so it feels very obvious to me. But I also feel like there are genuinely obvious clues about Christian's yeah. orientation. When do you feel like it is obvious? In I don't in know if I remember the exact scene but I think it's hard to, I mean, they, they definitely hint at it. They show him dancing with other men at the the club or the party, whatever that was, the school dance. And I think it became most obvious when she has him over for dinner, wine, movie night. I do like the joke of some like it hot and Sporadicus. I thought that was a very fun line. Sporadicus, which by the way, for those of you who don't know, is Spartacus. Yes. And she's talking about, he references Tony Curtis movies. Wow. Big call out. <laughs> sporadicus and some like it hot these are all like tropey gay films and the scene that they show is my favorite part it's the semen scene in spartacus is when antonius you just like uh freudian said semen i'm gonna have to listen back to the recording (laughs) i'm pretty sure you said the semen (laughs) 
I mean, maybe. Maybe I did, because that's definitely the vibe of this scene, which is when Antonius is being selected to be his bot Spartacus's body servant, which is oh. a euphemism for boy toy lover uh-huh. for sure and that's the scene when they're like playing footsie and he's like shutting her down that's the scene that, that they're watching I think from if you want it from a male point of view when a girl tells you her feet are cold and like wants to warm them on your legs or whatever that if that is if he doesn't bite on that either he's very he's, like he's, he's not into it for whatever yeah. reason he's not yes. into it but yeah. the one that got me, so I go a little bit further back. I think that is very obvious for sure. But the moment for me that I feel like you cannot miss is at the club when they're talking about Amber and Elton dancing and, you know, Ty's all sad about that or whatever. And he looks at them and he's like, she goes, let's ask, let's ask a guy, first of all, LOL. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, he's a guy, but like, he's a gay guy. And he's like, let's, a- let's ask a guy about Amber. And, she- and he goes, Hagsville. <laughs> bitch please are you kidding me he is so gay and i mean that in the best way and i love that about that too is like they realize of course and they become really good friends in a different way which is i think of course yes. how it should be but from it- a purely scientific perspective i've never heard a straight man call a female a hag unless right? it was like a witch in like the 1700s and especially that, that, with such yeah. flair you know what i mean yes. such flair the <laughs> hagsville of it all like you you just don't say that as a straight man I was debating this with Skylar as well. It's like, when is it obvious? And he was like, it wasn't obvious until it's super, super obvious. And I think what's cool is it's still not obvious to her. So that's the Mm -hmm. whole crux of this. It's still not obvious to share. He has left and she's like, I don't get it. And that's really sad. Let's be fair. But still, he leaves. She doesn't get it. But then the next day, of course, she's talking to uh, Dion and Murray about it in the car. And he tells her, he tells both of them that that he's gay and he uses all the euphemisms for it and friend of Dorothy and all these like funny lines and whatever. And it sort of starts to click. And that's like when she gets it. And I love that Dion's like, Ooh, he does like to shop. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I don't know a straight guy that likes to shop to be fair. So I had a weird experience with that scene because of the things we talked about earlier of some of the stuff that hasn't aged very well. So as soon as Donald Faison's character opened his mouth to let us know that Christian was gay, I tensed mm. up a little bit. I was like, yeah. please don't, don't let this. I'm honestly not sure which of the terms that he uses are offensive and which are not. I'm not going to repeat them for fear of it. But friend of Dorothy, I've heard that one before. But the others, I was like, I'm, I'm not sure if this is really offensive or not. None of them jumped out to me as super offensive, but I am, of course, not the subject matter expert here. I mean, I'm an ally, but it doesn't mean I know everything that could possibly be offensive. None of them struck me as super offensive. I always have thought the friend of Dorothy one was fun because I feel like it's relatively innocent. Like, let's all be friends Mm -hmm. with Dorothy. It's fine. I always like that one, but I don't know. If if there is one that's offensive, please let us know. We would like to learn. We are here to learn. Yes. Um, Educate me. But I do, I do like, I do like that whole scene. And I also like that it's like a bonding moment for murray and dion because of the whole freeway Mm -hmm. scene we can't go we can't not acknowledge the freeway scene of every possible freeway horror that could happen happens to them in what 12 seconds 18 wheelers motorcycles on either side honking merging and trying to merge off it was pretty brutal and apparently a bonding moment for them as a couple 
you yeah. know i liked i actually we haven't talked much about like cinematography in this and i thought that scene was really well shot for 1995 it didn't feel zany or kooky it felt like oh you're in the car with these people and this shit's going down i can't yeah. imagine being 16 and accidentally getting on the highway for the first time a hundred percent and the motorcycles especially i think of of the shooting yeah. like the motorcycles how those are shot where it feels very claustrophobic you feel surrounded yeah i think it's very well shot that scene it, it's very stressful i mean and they're all screaming of course and you know losing their minds and yeah, I think it's a very well done scene for being a, a very brief moment in the film, for sure. Yeah, I thought that there's a, a few scenes that I wanted to acknowledge where they do sort of some a lot of quick shots of like the the intro that you talked about with like the Noxzema commercial where it's just shooting different locations, different people moving around very quick. They mm -hmm. do it there. They do it in the photo shoot scene where Cher's uh, taking pictures of everybody. And it's, it's a very 90s, I feel like, staple of doing these things to make mm -hmm. a, a scene more active and engaging of just lots of random shots strung together. Yeah, I think so. And I think they don't they don't do that much later in the film for sure, but she yeah. does use a lot of really cool shots. One of the ones that I also really like is the skating scene later yeah. where like she shoots from kind of low and you see the jumps and the effects and all that. And I think it shows some respect for something that's been kind of made fun of throughout the film, right? Mm -hmm. Like this guy being mm -hmm. a nerd and or uh, not a nerd, but kind of a loser, a Lodi who is into skating. Like it's, not a cool thing and it's like mm -hmm. it takes a lot of work and skill and it shows it at an angle that kind of i think also elevates travis as a character right where yes. it's like hey he is actually important and a good person and you see that a little mm -hmm. bit in the in the donation scene as well where he's donating his bongs his bong. <laughs> oh my god but he like is thoughtful and he's going through a 12-step program which he couldn't remember the name of but he knew it was important and but he's like he's a good dude, and I think it like slowly does this rebrand of Travis throughout the movie, which I love because he's a sweetheart in the whole thing. He's a sweetheart. And tying that to or tying this to a future movie that would come out, I think it's pretty cool that Murray and Travis, aka Donald Faison and Brecken, would later go on to be in the band Love Burger in Can't Hardly Wait. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was cool that they went from this Beverly Hills situation to then being in a band together. I don't think the band lasted very long, but. I don't think so. I don't think they bonded over that very long. He also plays in, maybe you can refresh my memory because I'm blanking out in this moment. I thought about it earlier. But he also kind of plays, Travis's character plays kind of a douche canoe at a different 90s high school themed film. And he's like kind of a jerk, actually. Breckenmeyer? Breckenmeyer, yeah. And I, I mean, I'm struggling to remember what it is right now. But I remember I I watched it and I was like, this is my favorite version of Breckenmeyer. This is the one that I like. He's a nice <laughs> dude in this one. We want to watch this one. But yeah, he does a really good job at both, you know, ultimately. Yeah. And I love that they come together. Like, that's the other thing is we have a second match made, but this one is actually not made by Emma. And I think that's one, aka Cher, sorry, that I think teaches her a little bit, right? Of like, you can't force people to come mm -hmm. together who are not meant to be together and you shouldn't fight that natural chemistry and, and just your, that, your heart, your real heart, right? And she ends up obviously struggling with that with Josh. And I I would be curious to hear what you think. I think everybody's like, this is a great match. But did the pseudo brother vibe at all creep you out that they eventually realized they like each other? No, I think it slingshotted an entire category of Pornhub searches. So. 
Uh, for me personally, I thought it was great. You know, I just we 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 had a hard time not doing the like stepbrother throughout the film. But I it's in, I think they do a good job of explaining the exact circumstances of they were not raised together. They only right. lived together for like two years. I don't even know if it was in this. I, mean, I assume it was in the same house, but. They only live together for a couple of years. Their right. parents split up. So Josh has this bond with her father. And then later you find out he's also coming back because he feels a connection with her. Mm-hmm. And could they have, I don't know, made, for me it did feel a little sudden in the last 20 to 30 minutes of the film. It, I didn't feel like they had hinted at much of that before, aside from the sort of picking on each other in a very sibling-esque way, which doesn't mm-hmm. help the case. But yeah, that's that's how I took it. I think, yeah, I think there's a notable shift, though, where you can feel yeah. like they're both noticing each other more. His mm-hmm. kind of starts back when she's going on the date with the other guy. And I think that's partially because he hasn't been around as much to see her in that light. And so mm-hmm. now someone else is going out with her and it's forcing him to see her as somebody that someone has romantic interest in and he's like oh shit she's beautiful and she's funny and attractive to me personally and that's weird right and you see that shift kind of happening to him a little bit earlier than her but when it happens for her it freaks her out because he has been kind of like a brother vibe but you see some like language even changing that's creating Mm -hmm. the distancing where like he refers to the stepdad as mel openly and is like your dad your father says it that way as like hey he's your dad he's not my dad he's definitely (laughs) just your dad we do not share a father (laughs) yeah Yeah. i just want to be super clear we do not share a father so yeah i just thought that was a, a clear indicator of he's trying to make the shift mentally maybe for both of them of yeah, like, this is not that way. Like it's fine, you know. Now I'm I'm just curious. In the book, is it the same storyline where she eventually falls for you know a yeah. step brother? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and it's the same kind of thing where like her father loves him and and thinks that he's great and he's on board for it, and it also means in the book especially it means that she doesn't have to leave. Because she can, because this is again at a time where you need to like take care of your elder family and his, her mom is no longer with us and all of that. And so she has never wanted to leave their estate in their home and not be able to take care of her father. And the Mm -hmm. thing that Josh, AKA Mr. Knightley does is say, well, I'll come here. I'll come to you, which is a big moment in, especially at that time and in this place of a man who has his own estate is very wealthy, very successful again, to uproot his life, to accommodate his wife's future wife's whatever uh, home with her father rather than moving the parent, which was more common. And he's on board with that dynamic and they, he has this close relationship with her father. So it, it all is kind of seamless actually in the book as well. Um, I think that we have an opportunity here to really skew a bit younger in our podcast audience because we can just release this as like a 60 minute cliff's notes of the book emma like hey, oh you need to read this God. just listen to lamar mckenzie and they'll explain it all to you i love that she has that homage to cliff's notes in the movie too yes where yeah. she does the quote she does the shakespeare quote <laughs> and and dion's like wait did, sick did you write that and she's like <laughs> no it's like a famous quote so she's like you know where is that from? What? Where? Where is that quote from? And she's like, Cliff's Notes. And I'm like, oh <laughs> my God. I think my heart broke into a million pieces in that moment. 
but mm-hmm. it's still fun that they're that they're referencing it. Yeah, so we can homage to to, to Clueless and Close Notes. Come here for the assessment <laughs> of Emma. Yeah. The one of the things that we haven't really touched on yet. I mean, I did mention the '90s s soundtrack, but can we talk about banger after banger on this film soundtrack? Bangers! I love them all. Again, I think this movie is so nostalgic in all the ways, but the, the music is definitely one. Yeah, you got No Doubt, Salt and Pepper, Radiohead. You've got the Beatles in there. Mm-hmm. There's a Mighty Mighty Boss Tones live performance. Didn't have that on my bingo card. And nope. It's funny because I knew that song. Yeah. I remember I, I got into that song a decade after seeing this movie and mm-hmm. I forgot where I had initially heard it. And I was like, oh yeah, it was like, included. This is it. Yeah. No, I think it's so well done. And I like even the line about music where Travis earlier is like, the way I feel about the Rolling Stones is the way my parents are gonna feel about or my kids are gonna feel like about nine inch nails, right? So I should really lay off my mom. And it's like, yeah, kid. And also I love both of those bands, but I'm just saying. I thought that was yeah, fun. This movie's full of morality tales. I love it. This movie is full of great quotes. Like, let's yes. be honest. There are incredible quotes throughout this movie that I think are super underrated. You know, of course, there's the whole tennis scene, it, you know, <laughs> where they're standing along the wall when they first meet Ty. And Amber's says the thing about her nose where she's like, my plastic surgeon said I can't play any sport where a ball is flying <laughs> at my face. And Dion's like, well, there goes your social life. And it is, one, it is so funny, but two, it's so relatable because I was not allowed in PE for this reason myself because of my <laughs> my facial reconstructive surgery I had to have. And so I was like, okay, too close to home, guys. Like, y'all don't know what it's like for those of us who can't, who can't play Just, tennis. I also wanted to call out the catchphrases in this. It, and I don't know. It's hard to tell what existed before this movie. What did oh, this movie yeah. create? What did it popularize? Because mm-hmm. the lines as if, the lines whatever uh, with the big W fingers, that line about a Monet, and I still hear that reference to this oh day. God. I don't know if they're directly <laughs> quote include, but that joke gets still gets made to this day of, oh yeah, from far away she looks great, but up close it's a up total mess. it's a big old mess, big old mess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's such a like gentle insult. Mm-hmm. It's like it's definitely an insult, but it's like, you know, it's a subtle way to do it, I think. And it's really funny. And I'm like, I don't know, does that make me a bad person? I think it's really funny for sure. <laughs> Oh, I liked the Baldwin reference. Yeah, can't uh, make that joke anymore. No, oh, in their not because of that, because they're all in like their sixties and seventies. So if you say someone's a Baldwin, it doesn't doesn't really play anymore. It has a different meaning. It does have a different meaning, but they were hot back then. Yeah, they're like, yeah. damn, okay. Unlike Paul Rudd, they're they're not all immortal vampires who look exactly <laughs> the same. Yeah, so those are just like a couple of them that stand out to me. I think the as if is this, at least as far as being popularized. I think the mm-hmm. as if is definitely like a clueless thing. Whatever is a great question mark, though, because I feel like that was very popular throughout the 90s. And when I think of like, the, again, this was 95. So when I think about being a kid this time, I feel like I was saying it pre-95. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, you know, pretty common phrase. But yeah, that's a great question. We had the same question with Tarantino of like, is this a a regional or age thing? So I love that about movies as a snapshot in general of trying to place like, is this the capturing the ethos of the time or is it creating it? Is it creating something that's going to contribute to the zeitgeist or is it just 
representative of it that's our, what's already there well so yeah so the the catchphrase is in this like as if like whatever to your point i think a lot of that also comes from the fact that the director actually spent some time in a beverly hills high school sort of listening in and studying the students at the time so i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the one-liners in this you know like the, yeah. the monets and whatnot and the baldwins came directly from the mouths of babes if you will <laughs> Like she heard it and the truth came from the mouths of babes. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe she uh, got it all. I didn't realize she did that. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a authentic way to represent teenage America. I love it. Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna make a movie for sixteen year olds, what better way than to you know sit in and hear the way they're Hang talking? Yeah, with some fucking sixteen year olds. But maybe that's why she didn't make a lot more movies. She was like, <laughs> she's like, I'm all done. You gotta stop doing this. The older you get, the creepier this gets. <laughs> But yeah, I think overall, the what I love about this film on the whole is it's a really good homage to the classic, but it is doing doing it justice while modernizing it a lot. And I think it translates so well and it's so well done. And again, to your point, I think it holds up a lot better than you expect, you know, 30 years down the line. And so I love that about it with that in mind. I think it's a good idea to go watch the other Emma's because that this movie has been remade in all kinds of ways. There's a bunch of versions of Emma. There's one with Gwyneth Paltrow and then Anya Taylor-Joy. And uh, they're both really well done. The more recent one, it's beautiful. It's like costume design is incredible. It's it's color palette, very pastel is incredible. So I think, I think people remake this movie really well, is what I'm saying. They've done a really good job. And I'm really glad we got to talk about a female directed film that is just i think universally liked to be honest i don't know anybody who doesn't like this movie i think so I, yeah i've never met somebody who said i don't like clueless and for me the reason that i had waited two decades was just i i assumed it would feel like a 90s film but it mm. didn't when i re i mean yes there are it's definitely set there but i was worried that the humor wouldn't still land and all of it totally did so a couple of last minute call outs on my end I liked that. I don't know if you planned this, but we said, oh, we're not going to do all Christmas movies in December, but we do get a Christmas party in Clueless. Oh my God. You and Skylar are the same person because he literally <laughs> turned to me at that moment and goes, does that make this a Christmas movie? Does that mean you did do a Christmas movie? And that debate started and to which my answer is no. It is not a Christmas I don't movie. think so. I think just because there's a party that takes place at Christmas, I don't think it's a Christmas. But I do love the scene of Ty in the car with the lit up snowman, plastic snowman driving away. It's just this scuttling is, it. It's like, those are the best parties where everyone gets a souvenir. You could take one thing from the house. And leave it to a bougie fucking party for it to be a giant ass <laughs> snowman too. Like, love it. I want that souvenir. I also, I'm sure you're familiar with the Leonardo DiCaprio meme, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he's pointing at something oh. happening on the TV. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. So... How many times did they say the word clueless in this film, Mackenzie? Ooh, great question. Thank you. I don't think they say it. I think they, they say, say it four times. Four times. Okay. I four might count it was four and I would point at the screen every single time. So, Well, I, I Pixar didn't happen. Janelle, next time <laughs> we need pics of this moment every single time. <laughs> I also really liked how, I don't even know if this made me laugh. I have no idea if you're going to like this, but I feel like on two to three of our seven episodes so far, you have used the word tendrils. 
to describe plot lines and the fact that they use that in the dialogue of this film and they say tendrils. I'm honestly a little disappointed in you for not using it so far today. Listen, you didn't let me do it yet. I was going to say all the tendrils of the plot come together at the end. No, I super wasn't. But it is one of my favorite words. So thanks for noticing. Thanks. For thanks. sure. For sure. That's all I've got on my end. What? Anything else you want to touch on as far as the way this wraps up or anything that we didn't yes, already get through. Before we go, I have to talk about why the fuck is this girl in this wedding? Like, does this, you were a teacher. Let's, let's play interview the teacher for a moment. <laughs> How wildly inappropriate is it? Question mark. Don't know that a 16 year old girl is a bridesmaid in a grown ass woman's wedding. And not only that, like 90% of the guests are from the fucking high school. And I just, it's a very cute ending. Don't get me wrong. The wedding's beautiful and blah, blah, blah. And the bouquet toss is funny and all of that. But you're also like, this feels weird. Like you Look. should not be in this wedding. Look, it was a different time in 1995, <laughs> and clearly Mrs. Geist is a cool teacher, so oh. she invites all her students. She obviously didn't have many friends based on the beginning of the story, yeah. so like, yeah, it would make sense. She would invite all her students. So what I'm hearing is that you were the cool teacher. You're oh, yeah. When I get married, I'm inviting all my old students. <laughs> <laughs> if they remember yes. me. I'm holding you to that. It's now been recorded, yeah. and they're going to ask about <laughs> it. So, well, with all that in mind... That's clueless, guys, and we love Woo. it. In case that is not clear, but what is our what's our rating? So I'm going to start with you. What do you what would you rate this guy? Put me on the spot. So I think I need to clarify before we get too deep into our podcast episodes. This is number eight or so, and for my rating system, I think the the best way to judge that I've ever thought is: Does the movie do what it's set out to do? I think that's my scale because. I could say The Departed is a 10 out of 10 movie for me. That's one of my favorite films. But mm -hmm. that's not to say that another, a comedy film can't be a 10 out of 10 just because it doesn't have the, you know, that dramatic and like that over the top and the cinematography and all that. I think you can have those across, I think you can have 10 movies across any genre. So let me get that out of the way for anybody that's going to criticize me for putting Inglorious Bastards on the same level as Dumb and Dumber. I don't know. But mm -hmm. for today, for Clueless, I think after just the fact that I had waited two decades to to see this again and the enjoyment that I got out of it last night. Sure, there was a couple pieces of humor that didn't land, but it's well put together. It's well scripted. The characters are likable. It's funny, like la still laugh out loud funny. Mm -hmm. So end of the day, I think I'm going to go with like eight and a half. I think this is a great comedy film. I think it's really, really good. I love that. I love that that's your rating. I will give an asterisk to my rating as well because we've talked about my ratings relative to other things, you know, like being one Russian judge, I'm the asshole here. Got it. Fine. <laughs> but two, that it's a little, it, it felt a little inconsistent previously. And I think that's because my ratings are very gut checky, to be honest. It's like, what do I think about it in that moment? How did it make me feel? I, I don't know that I'm always thinking about it relative to other films that I love. Because I think that films that I would rewatch over and over that I really love might rank lower than some others that I think are amazing mm -hmm. and I would never watch again. So I think you could get into the weeds with like a watchability rating and quality rating and all those kinds of things. But my gut check on Clueless is like a nine. Yeah, it's like an eight and a half nice. or a nine as well. I love this movie. I think it holds up. And again, as a, a little bit of a nerd, I love how well it's how well it's adapted. And I and I think it holds up throughout. So. Good job, Amy. I love that we had 
an incredible female directed film to cancel out some some balance balance out sorry <laughs> hey, balance yeah, not out cancel come not on. cancel we love tarantino sorry sorry <laughs> but balance out some of the tarantino of it all um so thanks for joining us for that bit we are gonna do some more because again there's still some balance to be had so next week we're gonna talk marie antoinette and before we go have you seen it yet no, I'm so bad at history that I don't even know who Marie Antoinette is off the top of my head. I Wait, but is that for real? That's not a joke. I History is like one of my least favorite subjects. I, I don't know. It's Marie Antoinette. I assume she's a pop star. But Wow. Wow. Uh, you're going to get roasted so hard. Remember how you were getting hate mail in the early episodes? That's I still good. am. I think, yeah, I think it's going to happen again. Marie Antoinette is the last queen of France before the French Revolution. So go do your homework before you come back next week. But by the way, you're not alone. I had the same conversation with Skyler who was like, who's Marie Antoinette? And I almost cried. But well, the French Revolution, that's news to me too. So congratulations, friends. Good for you. <laughs> okay, well, I'm I'm the nerd in the room is what we have established. But the point is the film is super interesting and directed by another woman, Sofia Coppola. So we'll be talking about that next week and having a great also, conversation. And also, we just spent the last hour talking about dumb, likable characters. So I think I am very on brand for today's episode. <laughs> you are fitting right in, 100%. <laughs> so for now, go do your research, first of all, so that you are prepared for this next one. But also, go have a drink and watch a thing. Cheers. Cheers and feel better. Indeed. Feel better. Mm-hmm.